Hello and welcome to the Veer Vulnerabilisphere podcast. I'm Adam Glinsky. I'm Albert Imperato. Where we help men communicate and build empathy. Season two of the Veer Vulnerabilisphere podcast is sponsored by our good friends at Standard and Strange, where the clothes and the people are anything but ordinary, and the motto is own fewer, better things. All right, Albert, here we are in season two, episode two. I'm loving it. I'm feeling it. I'm really excited about this new season and our new direction here. I see you're back up in uh, Hudson. I know you had a little uh, stint in the city. So I just want to check on you, make sure you're safe and healthy and see how you're doing, bud. Yeah, we um, had our, we were calling it the the world's longest weekend. We came (laughs) up to the Hudson Valley like we normally do for a three-day weekend um, back in March and uh, basically stayed for five months. Um, and counting. Um, yeah, so this week was kind of a, an epic moment. I, I had been back to the city for just daily day visits, but not spent the night. So this is the first week this past week that I stayed in the city. It was the first week, uh, you know, being apart from the country and from Brian, but also I was back in the city, back in my apartment that I've lived in since the, the 1980s. And obviously all the, the memories and nostalgia were rather intense. Seeing you know, all my favorite places, but also realizing just how much, how different the city is. I mean, the streets are quiet, everything. I'm not going to concerts. It's, um, you know, I can't go meet my friends at our bar. Uh, it was, it was, it wasn't a happy couple of days, to be honest. It was really rather melancholic. Um, but uh, I do have that feeling somehow, somehow New York's going to come back. You just got to really have that hope and belief. And maybe it'll come back even better. Who knows? But yeah. uh, we just got to keep, we got to keep going through it. That's the other way. That's the way to get through is to get through it and continue to move ahead. Absolutely. I know in parts of Pittsburgh, I mean, as small as it is to New York City is just, you know, you just, you make a left or you turn down a street and it's just empty and you're just like, okay, like this is, this is the new, new part. But you also get to see just how, how it is and how it's structured and just, you know, the small things. Just like you said, like walking by, smelling the roses. You had that post on Instagram earlier of, you know, you posting some of your neighbor's flowers and stuff like that. And, you know, you really just got to take it all in one one step at a time with this stuff. So I'm glad, uh, you know, you had your trip, you're safe. You know, it might not have been of the uh, the best of times, but, you know, we're making it work. We're uh, we're all here and kind of, uh, you know, like, like Neil said in, in last season, like we're a part of history right now and we're still living through it and we're just kind of still just trying to, to pull it all together. So I'm glad you had another little stepping stone and uh, hopefully the, uh, the through moments of, of this entire experience. Well, but being down there, one of the things I was working on was with working with my business partners to sure. relocate our office to a smaller space. We've managed to keep all our employees intact, but we've had to downsize our space. And, uh, you know, so it is a big transition moment. I've been promoting music for 33 years now. And I'm, of course, asking lots of questions now about, hey, I wonder if this is sort of my last couple of months of being a music promoter, maybe maybe the first couple of months of, uh, uh, of something different. And, you know, of course, talking to you every, mostly every Sunday morning, <laughs> you start believing, you know, maybe there's a future for what we're doing. So that's why today's guest is so perfect. Uh, because it, his book about transitions, about our life transitions, just pretty much uh, resonated with just about everything you and I have been talking about with our guests who come on, tell us their stories. Many stories, of course, focus on moments of transition, moments of uh, uh, awareness where people discover something about themselves, sometimes that they don't particularly like, sometimes they discover a new strength. And that's that's something in this book and make, make, make this book that um, I just finished reading this morning, actually. I did a little skimming <laughs> towards the end because I was a little behind on my, my reading list, but uh, it was a, just an incredibly rewarding book and we're going to want everybody listening to, to pick the book up and, and they'll, they'll find it very, very enriching. Absolutely. Yeah. You, uh, I mean, you sent me it and the, the first chapter I read, I was just like, this is this is the expertise on all of our, our entire journey right here. So it's like, we're, we're, we're talking to the guru, the Yoda, the, the, the top dog, right, you know, right now of it. So um, tell me a little bit how you found Bruce. Um, he's our guest coming up here and, you know, I'm obviously going to give him the official intro, but I, I, I'm curious because you actually found him and I was like, this is so up my alley. I can't I believe I haven't done it. Yeah. So what would, yeah. how did, how to happen? 
I was pretty excited actually to tell you, Adam. Yeah. I was. I have a Sunday morning ritual. Mm-hmm. Rituals a big a big chapter in the book. Mm-hmm. I love rituals. Um, uh, I w- my Sunday morning ritual is the only day of the week I really watch the news. Um, mostly because I'm down here making a big breakfast and I turn on. Uh, uh, whether it's CNN or CBS, depending on what's going on. And I turned on Fareed Zakaria's show and Bruce was, was on uh, GPS, the Fareed Zakaria show talking about his book. And within 30 seconds of Bruce telling us, telling Fareed what the book was about, I was like, that's the dude we have to get Bruce. <laughs> yes. So I often see people in the media and reach out to them and they don't always respond. We did have a an Olympic silver medalist who did that and he did respond. He's became my instant hero. But now Bruce joins the pantheon of heroes who has a just was so responsive. And I was just hoping when he learned about what our podcast was about, that he felt like we were maybe doing something in in a, in a positive space that that you know he's he's working in as well. So that's how it happened. I just saw him on television. Right on. Well, let me give him the official intro and uh, we'll bring him onto the show. Bruce Feiler is one of America's most popular voices on contemporary life. He is the author of six consecutive New York Times bestsellers, the presenter of two primetime series on PBS and the inspiration of the drama Council of Dads on NBC. Bruce's two TED Talks have been viewed more than 2 million times, and he's known for living the experience that he writes about. His work combines timeless wisdom with timely knowledge turned into a practical, positive message that allows people to live with more meaning, passion, and joy. His new book, Life is in the Transitions, Mastering Change at Any Age, describes his journey across America, collecting hundreds of life stories, exploring how we can navigate and grow the number of life in transitions with greater purpose and skill. Bruce, it's so great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you, gentlemen. I've enjoyed getting to know your lives and uh, your ins and outs of, uh, of travel uh, this week. And you know, just listening to you kind of really reminds me of the experience I've had in recent weeks of kind of bringing this book into the world and finding, <laughs> I feel like I've been wandering around my house for, for years, muttering to myself, like, people are in life transitions. We should be talking more about this. Why is nobody talking about life transitions? And then suddenly this book arrives at this moment when everybody on the planet is in a transition. And so suddenly there turns out to be a visceral need for this. And so uh, just listening to you and your openness and, and, and talking about the, the moments that each of you find yourself in and and I hope we can talk about your transitions in this conversation and um, not just the ones that I've been uh, reading and uh, learning about, not just reading, talking to and sort of living and learning yeah. about. Definitely. Well, I mean, holy cow, the, the book is, is gripping. I mean, like I said, from the, the first chapter, I was just like, you know, mind blown, you know, uh, I was so excited just because like this is this is like really the core of of what we're trying to get, and um, along with with reading this, and I was uh, listening to an audiobook um, on a little bit of a drive I had. Um, I was listening to some Brene Brown, and you know, there's a lot of um, trust and vulnerability in with someone kind of telling you their life story, you know, um, and for you to do so many, what, like more than 250. And I'm sure there's countless other ones before you're really kind of putting the the data together. But my kind of first, um, you know, just question about this entire project was, you know, how did you find your relationship with um, your own vulnerability and kind of mutual trust to really get these stories out? Because it takes a lot for someone to tell you, Hey, this is, you know, this is my biggest win. This is my biggest loss. This was my biggest 180 in my life. You know, um, how did you kind of, you know, inwardly, and I guess outwardly too, just really get in touch with, you know, kind of trust and vulnerability through this project? So let me talk a little bit about how this happened. Sure. Um, And then I'll talk then I'll get to your question, which is Absolutely. once I decided to do it, like how, how, uh, how I went about trying to lead with vulnerability mm-hmm. in order to elicit vulnerability, which is, your, which is the answer to your question. The answer to your question mm-hmm. is that I decided that the way, if I wanted other people to be vulnerable to, uh, to and with me, that I needed to be vulnerable um, to and with them. 
So it, that's the answer. So we can go to the next question. But now I'm going to get all that. <laughs> so um, I had what I now think of as a as a linear life, right? So I grew up in, in Savannah, Georgia. Uh, five generations of Jews in the South. I left the South and went no to the Northeast for college. I left there and I went to Japan and I started writing letters home. Now I'm a lot older than you are, Adam. So this was on crinkly airmail paper. Right? <laughs> I, I had that paper. I'm, exactly. I'm, so, I'm in your peer group. Okay, so now we're going to gang up on you, Adam, right? So, so you know, <laughs> like there were no lines on it and like the pad would come with lines and you would slip the line underneath the, like the onion skin paper so that the writing wasn't kind of all wandering. Um, and so I wrote actual letters home with actual ink, but actual stamps on them from Japan. And when I got back to Georgia six months later, everywhere I went, people said, I loved your letters. I was like, great. Have we met? And it turned out that my grandmother had Xeroxed them and passed them around. And this is what it meant to go viral in the Stone Age of the 1980s. Um, and um, I thought, well, this is interesting to me and to all these people, like, I should write a book about this. I know anyone who'd ever written a book. And I sold my first book 31 years ago next week. Yeah. So this is, a, that's why I kind of wanted to go into that story. And so in my 20s, I wrote books about Japan, about England. I spent a year as a circus clown and wrote a book about that. I was in Nashville writing a book about country music when I had the idea like, okay, I'm a writer now. I should know more about the Bible. So I took the Bible off my shelf and I put the Bible by my bed where it sat untouched for two years gathering dust and making me feel guiltier. And I went to see a friend in Jerusalem in another one of those moments in my life where my friend said, over here is this controversial neighborhood and over here is the rock where Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac. And I was like, whoa, these are real places that you can touch and feel. And so I thought I should like travel along the route and read the stories along the way. Actually, what I thought, which I never said publicly for a long time, as long as we're being vulnerable, was I think I'll join the Bible as if it were the circus. I thought people would be offended by that, but, um, but that's what I did. So I climbed my hour out, I crossed the Red Sea, I tasted manna, I wrote a book called Walking the Bible that became a thing. Um, I spent a year and a half on the bestseller list and I went back and in my 30s wrote multiple books, made multiple television series, as you mentioned earlier. I got married, I had children, you know, this is that ascending life that we all fantasize about. But then in my 40s, like, boom, I just got walloped by life, this back-to-back-to-back -to -back -to -back set of disruptive, uh, nonlinear life events. First, I got cancer uh, at 43 and a new dad. Um, that's what prompted me to, have to look like I was going to die. I'll, I'll say this, we're, we're recording this in the wake of the Chadwick Boseman death. He, he was 43 I, when, he got, when he died. I was 43 when I was diagnosed. And that's not, that's a nonlinear event. Like, you know, your parents are supposed to die. Your children are not supposed to die. And so um, I asked a group of men to form a council of dads for my daughters. In a lot of ways, that book is also really about kind of this new breed of dad, a very involved dad, actually, an emotional, a dad who leads with emotion. Um, and so I, I wrote that book called Council of Dads that became the uh, NBC series this year. I almost went bankrupt that year. That was the Great Recession. My family owned some real estate in Georgia. And then my dad, who has Parkinson's, tried to uh, take his own life. Six times in 12 weeks, um, he tried to end his life. As you know, this is all in the introduction to my book. And on a whim, I started this storytelling project with my dad where every Monday morning, you guys record this every Sunday morning, every Monday morning, I would send him a question like, tell me about that toys you played with, the house you grew up with, how'd you become an Eagle Scout, how'd you join the Navy, how'd you meet mom? And he, over the many years that we did this, sort of backed into writing an autobiography, and it was this incredibly transformative event. And when I would share this story with others, everybody would say a kind of a similar version had happened to them. It's almost exactly what you guys were just talking about before I came on, right? Um, oh, my wife had a headache and went to the hospital and died. My boss is a, a, a crook. I've just lost my job. My, my brother just got diagnosed with stage four XYZ. And what everybody was saying was like the life I'm living is not the life I expected. Like I'm living life out of order in some way. And so I called my wife one night and I just said, after I was actually at the college reunion and people were telling me these stories and I said, no one knows how to tell their story anymore. I've got to figure this out. And the, the way I decided to do that was to create what I called the life story project. 
which is what you alluded to earlier. So what became crisscrossing the country and collecting hundreds of life stories. So these are people of all ages, all walks of life, all 50 states, people lost homes, lost limbs, changed careers, changed genders, got sober, got out of cults, got out of bad marriages. And so the, the essence of it was this is only going to work if people tell me what really was going on. And so if I sit down in front of you, know, you I'm looking at both of you on this recording device we're using, even everyone else is listening to us, and I say, here's my incredibly impressive resume. Tell me what goes on in your life. It was not, it was not gonna work. Mm -hmm. So the first question I asked everybody was, tell me the story of your life in 15 minutes. It usually took an hour. But in order, and now this gets to the answer to your question, which was in order to signal that I wanted the truth, the emotion, the stuff, as an NPR interviewer just said to me, why do you begin with your stuff? Well, I began with my stuff because I wanted their stuff because we all have stuff and it's generations of being hiding that stuff in secret that has us feeling isolated and alone and scared and anxiety and a higher percentage of men in their you know, X, Y, Z years taking their lives than in any other time because we, 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 we're not able to talk about our stuff. So I led with my stuff. I just put it out there. And then I said, tell me the story of your life. And then people poured out their own lives. Wow. It reminds me, Adam, when, when we started the podcast, we started interviewing each other and telling our life stories. And we definitely found out that 15 minutes is not enough <laughs> to tell our life story. And <laughs> we needed that hour. And it's been, it's been really interesting uh, to hear from uh, people who've been on the sh uh, uh, come on the show and also people who listen and write us notes that they go back and they listen to um, our own uh, discussions about our own lives. And that is often the entry point that really starts a new type of relationship with the people that we're talking to. You, just what you just said, you know, in us sharing something vulnerable. I mean, in many ways, our podcast grew out of that, ex that exact moment by, in a way, really my reaching out to Adam and, and sharing what was, you know, be, was uncomfortable for me. You know, I, I met this sort of anonymous community of men uh, uh, through this denim and style blog that I was doing. And often people would see my wedding ring and ask me about my wife. And I was always like, do I tell these dudes that I'm married to a dude? Like, am I really going to go there? Is it just going to be about jeans or am I going to, you know, is this podcast could be about something, uh, this uh, blog going to be about something different. And I couldn't help it. Just one morning, I was like, I like Adam. I think he's a really good guy. If I don't tell him, then what do we actually share together? So I just told him and, you know, he kind of laughed and he was comforting and beautiful. And, you know, I could see, you know, go jumping ahead into the, what your book talks about, but I could see how my own life story, my looking back and being frustrated being young and unable to share my story at the time. You know, as a kid in the late 70s, you didn't even hear the word gay. There was no way. You just didn't understand what it meant, what you were feeling. Uh, and I could see now from the, this stage of my life that I'm looking back from my 50s, trying to address that, I, that there is that kind of regret of not being able to, to do and say what I wanted to do when I was younger. And in sharing that with Adam, I was like, in a way, recapturing and kind of healing that feeling of not having been able to express what I wanted to express to somebody. So I was very, it built this bond of trust be, between Adam and I. And down the road, when I told Adam I, I wanted to turn this talking to guys through Instagram into a, into a, a project, Adam, um, you know, he was all up for it. And not only up for it, he's really, really good at being a partner in a podcast like this. So, so... You know, this is my long way of just saying your book really was just absolutely uh, mirroring, helping me understand things that I sort of in intuitively felt about how I approach uh, my own life. And, uh, you know, but you also provided some really great new phrases, new context, new context for me to understand it so much better. Um, the, first, the first part of the book is about, you, you talk about the shape of your life, that we're no longer, that, that the idea of a linear life is really not adequate to describe the, the, the world that we live in. Could you tell us a little bit about the difference between a linear life and, and one that's not linear? What, and and why, why is it so important to know the difference? 
So let me pick up with the first part of what you were saying. And what I was hearing and what you're saying, beside the beautiful story of your own coming to terms with being able to talk about your life story and, and using that story as a way to connect with somebody else. But I was also hearing something else in that story, which is that there is something very powerful that's going on in each of us. And, and I invite everybody listening to us to stop for a second and listen to that story going on in your head. It's the story of where you came from, of who you are, of where you're going. It's the story of what's important to you. It's the story of what you're struggling with now as you try to figure out one aspect of that story. And that story is the story of your life. And one thing we've learned in the more or less the, the decades that you were talking about this is a process that began in the 80s and then the 90s and sort of has accelerated in the last 20 years, that that story is not just part of you, but that story is you in a fundamental way. That life is the story that you tell yourself. And in a lot of ways, what this book is about is what do you do when you lose control of that story, when you can't tell that story anymore because you've been disrupted, because you've had a life quake in the terms of my book, because you've, you, you have a, a wolf has shown up in your fairy tale in some way, and you don't know how to get over, around, or through, um, or, or through that wolf. And that, that, what we're talking about here is what you do with, with, with a breach in the normal. And so that leads to the second part of your question, which is, um, what is normal? So what is a breach? And this is, in fact, what's changed. And what I sort of discovered, it was kind of one day in this process that I pulled the book off a shelf and it turned out that the book didn't move, the shelf moved, right? The shelf opened up and there was a whole other room, <laughs> um, uh, like one of those fantasies out of, a, out of a fantasy novel. Apparently Dan Brown has one of those in his castle <laughs> in France. So, and the room that I walked into when I pulled the shelf was this idea that was new to me. And now that I'm hearing from readers, it turned out to be new to a lot of our people too, which is that every culture kind of has what we can think of as a paradigmatic life shape. So in the ancient world, I mentioned the Bible earlier, I spent a lot of time in the ancient world, there's no linear time. There are no time pieces, right? So they think of life as the way they understood life as cyclical because life is the seasons to every season, turn, turn, turn. So the Bible in the West introduces the idea of linear time. And by the, and as you know, in the book, I have these graphic illustrations. So by the middle ages, they think, they know, they tell everybody that life is a staircase up to middle age and a staircase down, okay? So, you know, that means no new love at 40, no new job at 50, no moving to a new place at 60, you know, no getting married to a man at the age that you must have gotten married to a man because that was not, that opportunity was not given to you uh, at 35. So the, the, that is incredibly rigid. And then when you stop and think about it, it's exactly the opposite of what we were told in the 20th century when, when midlife was the bottom of, of your life. And so what, we're, what I discovered was that these shoulds, as I call them, the things that you should be doing, right? This is when you should be getting married. This is when you should be having a children. This is when you should be working um, or, or walking or, or having an accident or getting sick. Well, what happens when you do things off of the should schedule that we have been told? What if you get addicted as, as you know, Seth Manukin in my book goes to Harvard and is on top of the world, but he's addicted to heroin. Like the, like the, the turning point in his life was getting sober at 26. What if, you're, what if you're born into a world where your parents get divorced? What if you lose a child as a teenager? What if you have a pandemic at any point in your life that's not the midlife moment? And the, the point is these things happen across our lives. And so sort of the big idea that emerged so, you know, to pick up the narrative here for a second, as Adam was saying earlier, so I went through, I did 200 and uh, 200, more than 200 of these interviews. I then had a thousand hours of interviews, 6,000 pages of transcripts, it's the, you know, the size of my adolescent daughter's shoulders. And I got a team of 12 people, I'd never done this before. And then we spent a year coding these stories, like combing through them, debating them, knocking our heads together. Well, what is the big idea that is emerging from this? I didn't go into this thing looking at life transitions. I went in looking for how to tell your story. And what I discovered was the linear life oh, is dead. And let me do that again because I just discovered I have a, a virus. Um, and so what I discovered in this process is that 
the linear life is dead, okay? So the idea that we're going to have one home, one job, one relationship, one source of happiness, right? Because to, to carry the story, the ancient life, it was the cycle. In the Middle Ages, it's the staircase up. And for the last 150 years of science, we were told that life is a linear arrow of progress, okay? Freud with the psychosexual stages, Piaget with the child development stages, Erickson, the eight stages of moral development, the five stages of grief, the hero's journey. These are all linear constructs. And this reaches its peak with Gail Sheehy, who recently died, God bless her, because she really kind of burst this idea out into the open of saying that everyone does the same thing in their 20s and their 30s, and that everyone has a midlife crisis at 39 and a half. I don't know whether it was true then, I have my doubts, but I know that it's not true now. And so what I discovered is that the linear life is dead. It's been replaced by what I call the nonlinear life. And what I mean by that is that our lives get hit by changes at all times. And those, the pace of change is increasing. So I have to put the words on the lingo on the table, as you, as you said earlier, is we get hit by three dozen what I call disruptors in the course of our lives. And I call them disruptors because that's a neutral term. Like everybody else has called them stressors or crises, but some of these are positive. Like, so getting married is a, is a disruptor, right? Having children is a disruptor. Moving um, uh, can be a disruptor of happy things, you know, starting a new venture. Some of them are negative, like getting a diagnosis or a natural disaster or, you know, wh wh whatever else we might imagine. So we get through, we get... Um, three dozen times, once every 12 to 18 months, we get a disruptor. And for the record, that, like, that's more often than most people see a dentist. And, um, but one in 10, and most of them we get through, we're actually pretty good at this, but one in 10 becomes a massive change that I call a life quake because it's higher on the Richter scale of consequences and has aftershocks that last for years. And so what that means is our lives are taking all sorts of twists and turns and those lead to transitions. These life quakes lead to transitions and so the second half of my book, as you said, un un unveils the first new model for how to navigate life transitions. So the point is, we're going through more changes. Life transitions are a kind of lifetime sport that no one's teaching us how to play. And so what I tried to do was comb out of these conversations, a toolkit for how to navigate these times that are coming at us a lot faster. And as I said at the top of the conversation, I've been doing this for half a decade. And lo and behold, this book arrives at a moment when the entire planet is going through a transition at the same time. Like the, eerie, the, the, the timing is almost eerie. Yeah, it really is. I mean, COVID flipped everything for everyone. And now that we're in this position, it's just like, I, I personally feel that like, I'm mid transition to the point where I'm in limbo and I just, I, I, I can't plan. I can't do this. It's just like, okay, I have to just stay daily in my life because I, I can't even expect or even begin to fathom what's going to happen a month from today. Like, right. and, and that's just. So your transition, really, because we talked about this earlier. So this is yeah. a personal, professional, uh, lifestyle, spiritual beliefs. <laughs> <laughs> All of the above. Um, I mean, the the biggest one. I would say my biggest kind of life quake in your terms was having a child. Um, you know, we that was definitely. I mean, my wife and I were living together. We've been together for four years, having a very good time, and then just lo and behold, boom! Hey, I'm pregnant. Okay, what? <laughs> and then um, you know, to getting married, to having a kid, to inviting uh, my mother-in-law to stay with us. Um, so I had a, a bunch of you know disruptors all at once. A lot of really really positive ones, but again, a lot of um, you know just added stress. Like you said, the tremors that keep going. I mean, I have an eighteen-year-old tremor coming my way. You know, it's just it's that's what's happening. Um, but. It's just, it seems, you know, with, with right now in my life, like I am just like in a slow motion kind of like vacuum too, because um, there's a potential for uh, my mother-in-law as we're recording this to leave in six days, um, just completely go to, you know, her home country after staying here for a year. Um, my wife taking like a month and change off work to find childcare. Also, what is childcare in 2020? Right. Um, you know, <laughs> all these things. But then again, you know, it, it, this is the best I've ever been in my entire life. You know, I have a really great job. I have, I have a family. I have someone on this planet that I'm blood related to. That's huge. Um, and just like, 
you know, if you look back 10 years ago, you're like, what's this little college kid doing here, you know, doing his little thing to, hey, this is a respectable adult, you know, doing adult things, you know, whatever, whatever that means. But still like, you know, I, I feel right now with not knowing so much information, you know, in the age of information, I'm kind of stuck in this limbo, but I'm like, I, I'm seeing that kind of like the, the ball of the, the earthquake or, or, you know, the, the crater of it, whatever, however you describe it just is, is there, but it's just like, it's not to me yet. So it's so wild. And just, you know, being able to read this book really just allowed me to kind of, um, you know, one of the, uh, sections is accepted is just accept the limbo land and you know just kind of like how it's going to unfold and really just give me a couple extra tools in my tool belt to unfold it so i i'd like to kind of hear from the master himself is like you know hey we talk about these transitions but you know when someone's smack dab in the you know eye the hurricane or anything like that like how does that play into the transition the just like the kind of free fall part of it so uh let me go rapid fire on a couple of reactions to that story. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the first thing I want to say, given the architecture of this conversation, is that the idea of nonlinearity and the idea that life is going to take us on twists and turns that we can't entirely anticipate, turns out I do not believe that it's gendered, right? I do not believe that men have more than women or mm-hmm. in any way, shape, or form. But I do feel that the reaction to them is jet is generational so that xers understand this idea of nonlinearity intuitively more than boomers do and millennials even more than xers okay so that that, that millennials uh, intuitively understand i'm going to have 12.7 jobs and 11.2 moves and 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 yet boomers have had to learn that and that i'm i was born in 1964 which is nominally the last year of the baby boom and from my generation is still haunted by the ghost of linearity because that's what we grew up in and so uh i think people react to this idea in a slightly different way there's also i would even go so far as to say something of a generation gap a kind of transition gap uh between the generations so particularly you see this with boomers and their 20-something children that um what do you mean you're even the way you told that story like what do you mean you're having a baby before we're getting married, or you know, what do you mean you're you're moving until you without knowing what you're going to do? What do you mean you left one job without having the other job? Like that just seems so so counter to everything that that older you know that fifty plus people were told, um, and for thirty five minus people, it's it's absolutely average. So um, even the way you both told your life stories, <laughs> you're both open to it, but yet now you're both overwhelmed by it, and so that's an interesting sort of observation that I heard. That's point number one. Point number two, when you get hit, um, that I want to make is that a life quake, right? One of these big changes can be voluntary or involuntary. In fact. About 53% of them are uh, involuntary. You lose your job, you get a diagnosis, a natural disaster, a pandemic, and 47% are voluntary. Like you choose to start a new job or to have a baby or to move or something like that. And it was interesting. So I, when we were doing the coding of this, I looked at that and I thought, wow, 47% of people still make their own life quakes. Like that's awesome. Like people are embracing the nonlinearity. Again, I had all these millennial coders in my office and they're like, whoa, 53% of things in life happen that you can't control. And so that's another kind of example of this generational thing. But, what, but the life quake can be voluntary or involuntary. But this is a key point. I think that's been so highlighted by the pandemic. Like the transition must be voluntary. Like you have to choose to go through the steps and use the tools that you mentioned that I have in life is in the transitions, you have to choose to go through that process. And this is where it's deceptive here because in, in the pandemic, we're all going through a life quake. And yet the transition that each of us is gonna come out of it going through is different. Because for some people it will be work and for some people it will be family and for some people it will be moving and for some people it will be leaving a bad marriage, for some people it will be you know, be becoming more or less religious or whatever it might be. So it's collective in the sense that we're all going through it and yet it's individual in the sense that the transition that each of us is going to opt to go through is going to be unique to our own circumstances. Okay. So you've been hit. And by the way, the other thing I want to say just briefly is that they involve pileups. 
That's the other thing I heard in your stories. You know, this is a term that I had. To, it was a hard term to coin. And what I mean by pileup is that these things tend to clump just when you're going to move. It's funny because I've done this. I've done a lot of conversations about this book, and I always use this example, and you're the first person for him. It's true. So I would say something like, oh, just when you leave your job, just when you have a baby, you know, like your mother-in-law has cataract surgery. In your case, like just when you are going through a work transition, your mother-in-law is going back to her home country. Like that is a classic pileup. And now suddenly your wife has so wait a minute, you were looking for the job or you were the one, you know, starting a new venture in a podcast. And now, and you know, you were, you were unstable because the baby was stable, right? Because the baby had childcare and now your professional life is unstable. And lo and behold, the childcare becomes unstable. Like that's a classic pileup. I mean, I, I mean, it's sort of, it, it may not make it easier to go through, but it's a classic pileup and this is what happens. And I think the reason that it happens Sometimes it's coincidence and sometimes it's, you know, just the last straw. But a lot of times it's because our immune system is weakened. That's what, you know, by one event. And then the other event, it's like, you know what? We're going to just get totally, we're going to get the flow. <laughs> yeah. We, we <laughs> shut we, down. <laughs> we can withstand one of these pathogens, but like three of them now, it's going to like just be out of control. And, and there, there's disadvantages that, but there's advantages because what's now going to happen is you and your wife are going to have to figure out like who does what and what's the childcare, even conversation we had off the air that people can i still record this podcast every week at this hour or am i my are my work responsibilities or parenting responsibilities going to change like i'm doing a venture with somebody in hollywood right now and like he's on child care and i'm like i got teenagers now that's not a problem so everything is there's going to be this breach in the normal and you're going to have to reevaluate reevaluate everything and as difficult as that is that's what happens in a life quake is that we re reconsider what gives us meaning and then the last thing I want to say in response to this is that when you first go through it, people tend to respond one of two ways. Either here's a 217 item to-do list and I'm going to get it done this weekend and I'm going to be like a superhero and I'm going to, you know, kind of nail this thing. Or they're overwhelmed and they're scared and they feel isolated and alone and they're in a fetal position on their bed saying, I'm never going to get through this. But look at enough of them as I have done and certain patterns begin to appear. And so the first pattern, just to kind of, again, remind you, but to say it out loud to people hearing this for the first time, is the transitions involve three phases. There's the long goodbye, where you kind of have to accept the emotions and mourn the old life that's not coming back. Um, there is the messy middle, where you're shedding certain habits and uh, experimenting and creating new ones and then there's a new beginning where you unveil your new self and you're and you're through this period and so everybody like for a hundred years people were told in transitions that you first you had to say goodbye and they, they were linear and then you had to go to the messy middle and this is all bunk that's all wrong people do them in their own idiosyncratic order there is no order transitions are you know Life is nonlinear and transitions are nonlinear too. But one of the things I try to help people do is walk through what's your transition superpower? Which of these phases are you good at? And what's your kryptonite that you're bad at? Let's start at the one you're good at and build from there. So maybe you're good at saying goodbye because you can turn your back quickly. Or maybe you're a people pleaser and you like the old way and you've got to want to, you know, pout and scream and stomp your fist or whatever and say, I want to go back. I'm going to go back. We're going to recreate the past. Remember when the pandemic first hit? For months, we said, oh, we're going to shut down and mitigate, and we're all going to go back. Well, guess what? We're not going back. And it took a lot of it. I think the whole culture had a long goodbye crisis this year as we realized that we're not going back. And that's where we are now some number of months into this. So maybe you're good at that or bad at that, but let's find that maybe you're good at the messy middle because you're good at lists and experimenting and you know accepting micro wins and micro failures. Or maybe you're good at the unveiling your new self and you want to change your LinkedIn profile <laughs> even before you have a new job, as someone in my book struggled to do. So we're going to figure out which one you're good at and start there um, so that you build some confidence and you get ready for the parts that are going to be more difficult. Yeah, I found myself a lot between the uh, the lists and the fetal position uh, in my kind of realization. I, I, I can do the lists really well. I'm a very hyper-organized person, but I'm also, I would say, very emotional as well. So like when I was like looking through it, I was just like, oh yeah, that's, I remember that day of, yeah, we're going to do this. And yeah, okay, I got the whole thing planned out. And then like a couple of days into it, 
on the bed, just like, oh my God, how are we ever going to survive? How are we ever going to do this? So I, I gave myself a good chuckle during that, that part because I was like, this is so me, <laughs> but it's, well, it's I, true. Yeah. I will say that uh, what's been the hardest for me during this whole COVID period is, I mean, it's obviously a two-edged sword. We, it's been a hard time, but also a very illuminating time. I've completely been dominated by my, my work for 33 years. I, you know, fell in love with classical music, one of those disruptor events. I heard Leonard Bernstein conduct Mahler, and it made me completely lose my mind with excitement and just could not believe art could be that powerful. And I wound up going from being in, in journalism to going to work for a record company. And that completely dominated my life for the last 30, 33 years. Um, meeting artists, promoting artists, being with artists. I started my own company. That was a major life quake, leaving a big record company. I would never forget my mother telling me I had lost my mind, telling me this is the worst thing I could possibly do is leave a big corporation, start my own company. Um, and been, we just celebrated at you know, perfect timing, 20 years, the day that the, the year that COVID hit. We had just celebrated, thrown a big party for 20 years in business. And I was just sort of like gloating, like, I did it. My retirement is kind of in, I can look and see my retirement ahead of me. And I'm going to just ride the wave of, oh my God, I've been a, uh, a classical music promoter and I've brought culture to people and helped artists. And it's been such a beautiful life. And then suddenly it's, are we going to survive? Like the entire industry shut down. There's no concerts. There's, it, it was a total, I mean, it was like a triple triple life quake. I mean, just yesterday I heard one of the, the big management companies that I, I've worked with my whole life, given me business, sent their artists my way. They've gone, they're going out of business after 90 years. So the life quake is, is massive right now, but what's been really challenging and, and lately actually kind of exciting is realizing that, that I have an opportunity now to be, to have a next phase. You know, I was very driven uh, I was driven, I thought, by good intentions. I thought art and music ennobled people, and I thought promoting it made people feel good, and I think that played and satisfied me on many levels. Um, and then now I'm realizing it's okay if I if I understand myself and get more of my my daily pleasure and knowledge of myself in ways that don't involve my work. And it's been the podcast has been a major major aspect of that talking to adam getting you know close with him uh, and the people who come on the show and hearing from people and, and their stories has been very gratifying but also just by chance now i've lived in nature for five months straight i'm up in the hudson valley i'm a city kid who's now been in in the country for five months straight which is the, the longest i've ever been out of new york uh since college and this new relationship with nature has really changed my life. It really has. It's so, it could sound kind of cliche, but getting up in the morning, instead of hearing traffic, instead of seeing a bustle of people on going off to the subway, I'm actually noticing like individual birds playing on my patio. There's like a pair of doves and they're like, my neighbors are actual animals. I am actually realizing it's not some amorphous group of creatures, but there's a community. And I'm part of this little community. I fell asleep yesterday on a, on a lounge and woke up and because I was qu quietly laying there, these very skittish wild turkeys that I've been trying to take pictures of had surrounded like, our patio. There was like probably 20 turkeys, a couple of really big ones and the little babies. And it was just like, oh my God, I never in my life thought that this would be part of my life. Really feeling like nature was was right and there and imminent in my, in my identity. And I'm beginning to wonder, because people keep asking me like, you must be going crazy up there. When are you going back? Like, you must be getting, I'm like, mm -mm, it's, it, that's not what I'm feeling right now. I'm really realizing that my idea of myself is I need to loosen it up. I'm, I'm not sure if the next thing is going to be just the, devoting more and more time to the podcast, or it's going to be sitting quietly, maybe after 33 years of being a maniac, working like a maniac, going to concerts every night, maybe I'm just going to be quiet for a couple of years. And so lo loosening that up and realizing I'm not, I'm not betraying my, my identity and my destiny and all these phrases that we talk ourselves into believing by not pushing, by not pushing, pushing, pushing myself in one direction. And I, I don't know what the new direction fully is, 
but I'm realizing and accepting the surrender. Adam called it a couple of weeks ago to me, and you call something slightly different in, your, in the book. Uh, in this acceptance, that it's okay to not have a plan right now. It's okay to just ride this wave right now and see where it's going to take me. So I think that what's powerful to me about that is that life, a life quake is fundamentally a meaning vacuum. Okay, that we have pillars of identity, kind of ways that we make meaning in our lives. You know, there's great opportunity in the fact that a hundred years ago, we were told we had to believe what our parents wanted to believe, live where our parents wanted us to live, do what our parents wanted us to do, and in many cases, marry who our parents wanted us to marry. In the last century, that has crumbled in ways that seemed unimaginable a century ago. We can live where we want to live and do what we want to do and believe who, what we want to believe and love whom, who we want to love. And that is an incredible opportunity, but it is also something of a burden um, in the sense that we, are, we do have to write our own story and we do have to make our own, uh, our own choices. And sometimes we just get writer's block writing the story of our own lives because there are so many choices before us. So how do we make meaning in that? We have what I call the, the three big pillars of this, what I call the ABCs of meaning. The A is agency, that's what we do or make or control often our work lives, our creative lives, whatever they may be. That's the A of the ABCs. The B is belonging, our friends, our relationships, our neighbors, our colleagues, our family. And the C is a cause, that's something higher than ourselves, a calling, our purpose or whatever we might be. And we have, we figure out that balance in our lives. Everybody you know, sort of, I'm an ABC in this construct, like I'm a creator, so I'm like agency first, but I'm incredibly belonging oriented. And cause is kind of less important to me. My wife is a cause oriented person. She started an organization that helps entrepreneurs in 50 countries. She, she tolerates the rest of us, but she's most energized by helping the entrepreneurs that she helps. She's a CAB. So we have this kind of ordering of what we balance and what we value in our lives and then along comes a life quake and that is just exploded. And that the structure and the pillars and the building blocks of our identity and our meaning are scrambled in some way. And again, that can be scary and challenging. And you know, as Adam said, you can wanna plow your way through it. You can wanna feel stuck in the quicksand, but you're gonna feel both and it's gonna be part of the process. But the opportunity that comes is to revisit those pillars. So I think of meaning as lady justice without two scales, three scales, and then they're kind of like pebbles or whatever they might be on the scales. And so what you're going through and what you've just described is mm, maybe there's too many pillars on the agency and I need more in the cause of, or maybe there's not enough in the cause and there's too much in the belonging or whatever it is. And we're going to kind of move the pebbles around and kind of rebalance our lives so that a meaning, so that a life quake is a meaning vacuum and a life transition is a meaning factory where we are going to like rebuild and recreate the basic sense of what's most important to us. Adam, you know, you're suddenly, as you said, you have this relationship with your wife and then suddenly here comes a new kid and anybody who's had a kid, um, and I have two of them that were born 32 minutes apart, like, so I had two at once. Um, uh, suddenly you have to rebalance everything here. And so that's where we are. That's what the entire country is going through right now is to try to figure out, okay, all of our meaning is scramble. I mean, just a, a quick side note here. I had these, as I mentioned earlier, I had these you know, kids that were helping me code these. And one day I said to them, well, tell me something that you have noticed in the coding that I didn't even notice when I was doing these interviews. And boom, two seconds and one um, young economist raises his hand and he says, um, people seem to move in the, in the course of this. I was like, that was interesting. We go back through a thousand pages, um, excuse me, 6,000 pages, a thousand hours. And sure enough, 61% of people moved in the course of their life transition. 61%. That's a lot. Now, I don't know about <laughs> you, but 61% of the conversations that I'm in, people talking about moving, and then 50% of the two people I'm talking to today, one of them is talking about moving. And that is not surprising to me in the least. It's part of the process of rethinking you know, and that's going to involve all the tools that we're, you know, we can just tease here 
people are going to see in the book because we're not going to have time to go through them. You mentioned accept it, right? You mentioned people using rituals, right? And then the next one I was thinking of when you were talking a minute ago, which is you have to shed certain things. So if you're going to move or you're going to rebalance how much time you spend in the city versus the country, you're going to have to shed certain things. Okay, you're not going to be able to walk outside your door and get a bagel and a newspaper and be and run into a friend. You're not going to do that. Now, your friends are going to have to be the turkeys and the robins. Um, and then you're going to have to get in your car and go to the, uh, um, to the uh, farmer's market. And that's going to, and that's creating. So those, that's what the messy middle is. It's shedding certain habits, but creating new ones. And it's all part of the process. That's why life transitions are so important, which is, as I said, I've been muttering to myself for years that now, lo and behold, everybody's realizing without my, which is why, by the way, I didn't say this at the top, but some breaking news here, that bio that you kindly read about six bestsellers has now been rendered obsolete because I just learned that this book is in the top 10 of the New York Times bestseller list. So um, this is now, uh, Life is in the Transitions, it's now the seventh bestseller that I've written, I'm pleased to say. And it's, it's because everyone's going through this process right now and it's so new and everyone's handling it in a different way. If I can, I just want to just tell you why I enjoyed the book so much. I like that you used a variety of ways to relate um, the science, uh, the personal stories, these individual characters that you're talking to. They become characters in this in this mosaic. The various people, and and it's extraordinary. The heart, some of the hardships, some of the, 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 the bounce backs. It's amazing how much it makes your problem seem small, doesn't it? Oh my God. Oh, yeah. Lo- losing, oh, yeah. a, you know, lo- I mean, losing a limb, uh, addiction, being abandoned as a child, it, the list went on, but you did a beautiful job of weaving science and, and you, um, you gave, you gave us scientific uh, facts, but also historical perspective. You know, I just love that, you know, you're, you're getting a, you know, St. Augustine is in the book and, you know, the contemporary uh, uh, people that we know are in this book. So you're, you're, there's this historical art to it, but there's also this very personal, very personal aspect of this book, your presence of your dad. It starts with your dad and it ends you talking about your dad. And that uh, obviously a relationship between a man and his, his father is such a defining it's it's an it's an iconic relationship. Uh, uh, I felt this incredible, powerful bond between you and your dad that I just absolutely loved hearing about. It was just uh, so beautiful of you to share that. But I could also see how that fueled so much of what you did with the li- with this life story pro- uh, project and with writing this book. Well, I appreciate that, and um, my. You know, you talk about vulnerability. The book opens with my dad trying to take his own life and an echo back that his father, who also had Parkinson's, in fact, did take his life a month before I graduated from high school. And, you know, I've often wondered whether it was my grandfather, Ed Filer Sr., his inability to be vulnerable, his inability to tell his story, his inability to communicate because he was of that generation born in the 19 teens in, in Meridian, Mississippi and coming to Savannah, Georgia and being a country lawyer and, and scrapping his way through his life. Um, but, and as powerful and inspiring as that is, when I went back and read, uh, he left behind 28 audio tapes of his life story. And when I, back, when, when, I back, when I went back and read it, when I got sick, and I talked about this in Council of Dads, it, it was all about the things that inspired him, machines, air conditions, the first car he was in, the first airport he was in. And that was amazing. He didn't mention his wife once, right? And it was so clear he was not accustomed to talking about family and relationships and feelings. And the second he got sick, he took a pistol to his head and and ended his life. And then my father, who has become much more emotive and emotional over time um, and was much more communicative than his father was, then here, this is the power part of Parkinson's and what it'll do to your mind because Parkinson's is, is a disease of the dopamine which affects your movement and your mood. And then my father, having promised for decades he wouldn't do this, then goes and tries the same thing. 
And that happened, it's now seven years ago. And my father still, since we've been on this air, has sent me a story. He's still writing these stories. And it was this act of being vulnerable and telling his own life story that literally brought him back to life. And so, yes, I, and I, in fact, I'll, I'll say something I haven't said in any conversation, which is I assumed when I was writing this book that my dad was going to die. He's quite sick. He's been, he's been in hospice now for two years. And I expected while I was writing the book that it was going to end with my father's death. And then I got to the end and my father was still living as he is right now when the book has come out. And I was like, well, what am I gonna do? And I remember like, this was, you know, like a, a, a fascinating pickle that I was in, uh, having assumed for whatever, 80,000 words, this was gonna be the end. And then one day I realized, oh, I'm gonna tell his story. I'm gonna, the, the stories that he's been writing, it has been like a life story project. And so, as you said, the, the conclusion of my book is the bookend to the introduction and tells his story and it ends with my saying to him you know so you know what is the lesson here for your grandchildren my children and my niece and nephew and it was tell the stories like that's what i want you to do is tell the stories and that's of course the theme of this whole conversation of this process and as people get to the end of this book it turns out and i do have by the way at the back of the book a sort of um uh, a process to walk you through doing a life story project of your own with a loved one. And then I actually even now have, if you go to brucefire.com, a way that we will send you an email every week and you can tell your own story because, you know, there's a line I like at the end of the book that came out of me one day, I hadn't planned to write it, which is telling your life story can, tell, can take two people without a, have no relation and give them a relationship for life. That's the power of vulnerability. It's the power of storytelling and it's the power of sharing where you are. Because the last thing I'll say is that I notice in this relationship, there's a whole chapter in my book about don't be alone, go through your transition with somebody else. And that, of course, in this intergenerational relationship that you guys have built, exactly what you're, what, you're, what you're showing is that sometimes it's easier to be vulnerable with someone that you're not around all the time. Oh, my goodness. I love the idea, Adam, that you and I are intergenerational. Yeah, that really, how about that? That really is like a $2 <laughs> word to explain that one of us is much older. Oh, that's a treat. That's a three dollar word. Yeah, there's been inflation since you first. Since you were his age, there's been inflation. I'm going to throw in one last thing. Uh, I know you're. I know you're a classical music promoter, but you know this is pop music now. I have to throw in one last thing. One of my college, I uh, one of my life quakes was deciding to go to, to school out on the West Coast. I was a, a New York City kid. I went to Stanford. I was three thousand miles away for my family, which was necessary because my parents were going through a very nasty divorce of which I was right in the middle and being geographically away was really helpful. That was my life quake. But while in college, the other life quake hit and it was someone who peered towards the end of your book. I read James Baldwin and I read James Baldwin's essays and I would put, I covered my walls of my room at Stanford with, uh, I would take my electric typewriter, type out a paragraph of James Baldwin or a line or a sentence, and I put them like a, on wallpaper around my room. And, and James Baldwin just made me realize you could change the world with words. Word, you could absolutely change a life, change a world with words. And it made me want to be a writer. My, my old high school mentor was a, a teacher. He taught me how to write. But when in your book, you sat and heard James Baldwin talk. I was like, I had the chills this morning. I was like, oh my God, this man was in his presence. So I just have to just thank well, you. Well, you said at the outset that, 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 that your hero would surprise me and that does surprise me, yes. In fact, what that, that, that story, it's funny because I have such a, a kind of a, a bit, I've told the story a lot. Like I'm a professional writer. I've written 15 books and I, you know, you travel and that you speak and then the, 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 at every time you open up a conversation in front of a professional writer for advice, somebody will raise their hand and say, like, what advice do you have to a, to a new writer? And I have given the same answer every time, which is when I was in college, I would see James Baldwin and he said, um, you need four things to be a writer. There's something kind of, by the way, charmingly Abe Lincoln and a log cabin about this answer, but I still give it, which is you need, a, you need a table, you need a chair, you need a piece of paper and a pen. Okay? And so what I love about this is I've sort of always unbaldwinized it by saying, shut up and write, right? So the way I've always said this, I, I know a lot of aspiring writers who are better at aspiring than they are at writing. And so, um, so my advice is stop saying you want to be a writer, sit down and write and stop talking about it, right? Like just go do it, okay? And so I... 
I'm writing, and one of the things I found in these conversations was that people write in their life transitions. They journal, they take notes, they write a novel, they write poetry, they just scribble to themselves. It's incredibly powerful. And people who've never written before write their way through. And so I decided to make a little section. And by the way, they write unusual things. They write jokes, right? I mean, I talked to this woman who had a very difficult year uh, where her husband fell and she had to take care of him. And, you know, they had financial problems and they had a kid. And at the end of it, she's like, I'm going to do something for myself. I'm going to follow my my childhood dream and I'm going to become a stand-up comedian. So she started writing jokes. And so she said she would go back to intergenerational. She would go to the comedy clubs in L.A., and try to do her comedy. And she was like, everybody there was half my age. And like, they wanted to make dick jokes and they thought I was their mom. And it really sort of embarrassed them. So the, uh, so the, so people write things you can't even expect. So I'm gonna do a section on this. I'm like, okay, well, I'm gonna tell this James Baldwin story because I've loved it and I've told it so many times. And then I was like, what if it's not true? Like, what if I made it up? Or what if I conflated it and I never saw, I mean, I knew I see James Baldwin, but like, what if I somehow, and so I go typing into the internet to see if James Baldwin has ever said publicly anyplace else before, all you need is a table, a chair, a paper, and a pen. And I couldn't find it. And I was like, uh-oh, I've made this up. Or, you know, I've, I've exaggerated it. And then I decide to go to the Yale Daily News because I, this was at Yale and I was, and and lo and behold, I find, it's a front page story in the, I've never told this publicly, it's a front page story in the Yale Daily News in like October of 1983. And I was a freshman in September of 19, like somehow a month, I was so drawn to Baldwin that I managed to get myself to like the Yale Art Gallery, which I'd never been to, by myself to go hear this, it's, it's, it's not out of character, it is sort of in character, but in my narrative of myself, that kind of boldness came later in my life, but somehow I went to this thing and somebody sure enough said, how do you be a writer? And the answer to the question was not there, but this event was uh, first person news. And I think he was dead within a year. I mean, he, he did not live that much longer than, than that. So you're right, that totally surprised me that he was your, but there's your answer. What's your piece of paper and what's your pen and what's your, maybe this podcast is that but are you writing your way through your life transition? Because he's speaking to you uh, from the grave through uh, life is in the transitions. Well, very, very briefly, when I lost my mom about eight years ago and my life went totally off the rails. It's a long story, but I did do a two-year sort of therapeutic every morning waking up at five in the morning. There you go. Uh, and, and, I, and I, 642 pages later, I, it was my story. It was the first time I I'll never forget it, sharing it with my sister and realizing she didn't know any of this. My sister didn't know any of my story. You know, anyway, that could be like a whole separate story. Hope maybe one day when this horrible virus thing is over, we'll, we'll let, you'll let us take you out for dinner and we'll, tell you, we'll fill you in on more details. But I just want to just say, uh, Adam, we'll, we'll wind down. We don't want to keep you longer than we, we said we would be. But we just have to uh, just thank you. This has just been, I mean, this is off the charts, exciting and, and illuminating and and. In, in so many ways, so encouraging. Uh, we're really grateful that you were here today. I think what you're doing is important. I celebrate you and thank you for having me, Adam. Yeah, um, I just want to echo what, what Albert said. I mean, just truly, truly thankful. And, um, you know, along with what Albert said, I'll keep mine really brief, um, is, you know, kind of my takeaways and my learns from this was just seeing that, you know, my, my own fragility, my own kind of uh, response time or my own, um, you know, just how I handled the situations after kind of finishing the book, I, I noticed in my life that as I continued doing this, you know, I had a little bit, you know, better response time, like a little bit more hold of my life after, mm-hmm. you know, going through so many transitions and, and reliving them. So, I hope that along with everything else um, that people have access to, they can really find out, you know, hey, you actually get better at this sometimes. So, um, you know, again, the, the book is phenomenal. Please pick that up. And Bruce, I mean, I, I just got to say one shout out. This is to my mom. I know you read uh, Walking the Bible three times. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, hey, mom, <laughs> I'm speaking to the author. Um, so huge, huge uh, thing for me here too. So a little bit of a personal win. So thank you again. Um, is there anything you want to uh, tie this episode up with? Um, you know, any last words uh, yeah, for this I'll, year, Bruce? I'll, 
that's fine because I'm thinking I, 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 I have a date with my teenage daughters and any, any dad of teenage daughters um, or any parent of teenage daughters will know how precious any time with them. But we have spent our pandemic um, writing a musical. Uh, oh, very fun. <laughs> we're writing the book and that was, it's our writing through this challenging time because they're musical theater kids and they can't see, they can't go to practices, they can't see musical theater and I encountered a story and we're writing a musical. Um, and that's it, I'm doing that in a few minutes um, with them and, and yeah, shout out to your mom and to the many Walking the Bible fans out there. Um, I hope you go on this journey uh, with me too. And I want to say to what both of you just said, you've echoed the last thing I want to say is that transitions work. 90% of the people I talked to have said they got through their transition. So whatever you're struggling with out there, whatever transition you're in, if you come on this journey with me, you'll be surprised, but you're going to learn something and, and, and something, these people that you meet will give you hope, but also practical things you can do tonight, tomorrow, next week, three months from now, so that whatever you're struggling with, or whatever transition you're in, we're going to make it go a little bit better and in a lot more successful way. There is knowledge out there, everyone. We will get through this together. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Bruce. Well, this has been another episode of the Veer Vulnerabilisphere podcast. I'm Adam Glinsky. I'm Albert Imperato. And I'm Bruce Potter. Thank you for listening. <laughs>